Aalto University Podcast. Hello. Welcome to yet another episode of Cloud Features. Um, my name is Mika, and I'm here joined uh, today by two fantastic scholars, Nicole Lotz and Derek Jones from Open University from the UK. And um, they have recently published or curated a special issue called Design Education, Teaching in Crisis, published in Design and Technology Education and International Journal. Uh, Nicole and Derek, thank you so much for taking the time to uh, for this chat. No, thank you. It's great to be here. Hello, Mika. How are you? Good, good. Hope you are both doing well as well. Um, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, so before before we start, um, could, could you kind of introduce yourselves a bit more in in a bit more detail? I go first. Thank you so much. Um, I'm, Nic- I'm Nicole Lotz. Um, I'm an academic at the Open University, which is a very large distance um, education institution in the UK. And um, I'm um, in the group, in a design group there. That's in the um, School of Engineering Innovation. And um, for that school, I also recently became the Equality, Diversity, Inclusivity and Accessibility Lead for school. So I'm particularly interested in um, how inclusivity comes into um, education, in particular design education. Wow. And uh, I'm Derek Jones, and I'm also, uh, I also work at the Open University in the UK. I'm a senior lecturer in sustainable design there. Um, as Nicole said, we're a large distance education institution, um, and that's that's what does it for me, I suppose. I'm really interested in how people learn to be designers, um, and at a distance, there's that extra fascinating challenge. I also come from a practice background as well, um, so I'm a, quite a, a, a new academic in some ways. So I've always been interested in how people actually do learn to, or become designers. Um, I'm also the convener of the Education Special Interest Group for the Design Research Society. Um, so yeah, you could say I've got quite a strong passion and a bit of a thing going for design education just now, to be honest. <laughs> so okay, so like it, it really sounds like um, I mean your backgrounds. I mean you were really fit for the uh, for for curating the the special issue, and I was actually interested. Like, could could you? shed some light on like why did you decide to take upon this uh, special issue mm-hmm. um yeah i mean you're right you would think that we were in the perfect position to do this and i remember right at the start of the pandemic a few people tweeted and asked how are we going to do this and you immediately think that yeah we should be able to just write down how it is that we teach design at a distance but it turned out it was just mm. as hard for us to do that as it was for any other design educator to, you know, if you articulate precisely what it is that you do in a studio, every little detail, every little thing that contributes to a student's learning, you'd be there all day. 
and it it was actually quite hard for us to do this. Um, so we, mm. we we spent a lot of time trying to do that, um, and it was good to go through that experience. Um, so I suppose with the special issue, I suppose we kind of wanted that experience for other people as well. It was a unique chance for us as a practice, as a community, to learn something about ourselves. Um, you know, well, it's a classic design exercise in some ways. When you take something away, um, whether it's a product design or uh, some, something that you're working on, when you take something away, you very quickly realise how it is that people accommodate or deal without that thing. And taking mm. studio studio away, you know, that's one of the fundamental sort of crutches or props, if you like, of design education. So that was definitely yeah. one motivation, that, that unique chance to learn something. For me, I think it was the opportunity, as Derek said, you know, I mean, obviously the pandemic, but even before that, I remember that when um, Derek and I chaired a um, track for the um, Learn by Design, Learn X Design Conference in Ankara, I think it was summer 2019, mm-hmm. um, we shared a track on alternative studios, actually. And we were thinking we really need to bring more work um, in this area together for others to make it much more visible to see, you know, what knowledge there is and well, which knowledge we still lack and we need to build on, you know, and to build a, a better community. So I totally agree on that one. Yes. Yeah. Hmm. I suppose there's a final, like, I don't know, maybe it's a slightly strange thing. Um, I think when, when Kay approached us about the special issue, there was a sense of, it was like we needed to almost record something for posterity, for history, that this was a unique moment. And it's not just to say, you know, do the academic thing and say we need to collect some data and stuff like that. It was more actually just to acknowledge people's experiences. Because mm. some colleagues were really, really genuinely struggling. We were struggling as well. You know, just because we are a distance yeah. institution, we still there was still some tough times. Everybody had tough times. And I think it is important to to mark that and to recognize that as well and not diminish the experience. And I think a lot of educators have found that the different voices that have emerged over the last year and a bit. That's been important. And I think, yeah, well, I hope we can hear more of those voices in the future. I hope that's something that we do learn and that we do take into the future. But yeah. Hmm. Yeah, true. And, and I guess like, I mean, kind of thinking about my own experiences, like March 2020, I mean, that was really tough in a sense because mm-hmm. no one really knew what was happening. Yeah, absolutely. Like, yeah, I mean, I, I remember we had like two weeks to basically redesign everything. I was like, Yep. Okay. What do we do? And like, you know, where, there's so many things going on, right? Yep. No, absolutely. I mean, it's 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 like it's, it's difficult as well to research in that environment. I think we will see a lot of pieces comparing um, sort of online to offline um, spaces, and it's difficult to make that comparison when you've you've, you've summed it up perfectly there, Mika. That mm. it's not a controlled experiment. This was an emergency. People had to suddenly just change everything. Um, and whilst there was a lot of creative practice that absolutely burst out mm. and came from that because we're good at making stuff up, you know, that, that's what we do as designers and as design educators. Um, you can't make up stuff 24 hours a day all the time to support all your students in, 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 in the way that you may, maybe yeah. wanted to. Mm. Yeah. So, yeah, it was tough. I think there also was something that came out in the special issue quite clearly, you know, loads of um, adaptations and, and learning from that, you know, starting starting up as, you know, just simple translation, as you say, we had to do it quickly. But then hmm. really, as, as Derek said, you know, we designers, we, we're not just good at making stuff up, but also learning from it, I would say, you know, the reflective hmm. practice in that is really important. And we do have loads of um, papers, you know, using this reflective practice, which is really great. So adapting a, tr- a simple translation from 
from, say, you know, just meeting in the studio and then meeting online all the time, you know, as if you were in the studio, <laughs> yeah, it just yeah. doesn't quite work. <laughs> so, so it's yep. this, um, mm-hmm. I think, I think we did, ca- a few people did, did capture these translations and transitions and adaptations. Um, that's really quite exciting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And like, and, and just to build on what you mentioned, Nicole, like, and also Derek, like this kind of, what you have, like, or the, the special issue is like a historical vantage point as well. Like not only pedagogical, theoretical contributions, but like, it's like what kind of, um, like kind of looking at the special issue and all, like all the submissions, basically, did, did you find any kind of themes or topics that were kind of prevalent? Oh, definitely. I think, well, there's several that came out. I think, um, yeah, we could probably have written two or three different special issues, I think, on some of the themes. Um, and again, I think we did stick to it. We have to put our hands up and say we did stick to what we thought we saw in the themes. Other people will see different things when they read across the papers, and that's brilliant too. I'd love to mm. hear about that. I really genuinely would. I think for me, one of the big things, and again, this is just because this is, I suppose, one of my areas of sort of passion and interest. Um, it was the things that people were surprised by. It's what I call the invisible things or the hidden things. Mm-hmm. So it's all the assumptions we have in a traditional studio that suddenly because that studio is taken away, you miss them when you go into an online space. And sometimes you don't even know what it is that you're missing. Now, we've got a sense of it because, as I say, we've been used to sort of teaching in virtual studios. So we've got a sense that it can be some of the social mm. mechanisms, for example, can be as complex as a proximate studio, but a lot of colleagues um, weren't aware of that, um, understandably, because they've never tried it, they've never experienced it, they've experienced a different type of studio. So for me, that making visible of things was really quite important. Um, I, I mean, just a tangible example of that would be the work Colin Gray's got a piece in there, and Leslie Ann Noel also has. Um, an article in there, and Colin's point about the fact that he heard students' voices that he didn't normally hear in the proximate studio. And that opens up a massive ethical question uh, in terms Mm -hmm. of, well, who hasn't been heard to date? If we go back to the traditional mode, does that mean that they're going to be then silenced once more? What are we going to do? And were, by the way, traditional voices heard in the online space? My gut feeling is that there's never a perfect space where everybody can be heard all of the time. So maybe we shouldn't be having a singular assumed perfect space, maybe multiple spaces, multiple voices, multiple contexts is a bit more appropriate. I don't know. Um, but that for me, that'll be one of the mm. big ones, one of the big themes for me, um, the, the kind of invisibility things and making visible. Mm. I don't know about you, Nick. Yeah, de- definitely. I think I, I kind of build on on that. Now, for me, it's this going back to underlying values so all the hidden mm-hmm. stuff I mean we know all about the hidden curriculum and um, you know how how tacit kind of um, um, ways of, of um, conveying curriculum is actually really important and once that's gone you know the underlying structures for that you know the habits you engage in every day um, yeah. then you suddenly realise you really miss something. Mm-hmm. It is, as, as Derek said, all the yeah. little things, but mm-hmm. the, it's the values, the underlying values. And I do think that um, some of, our, of those key papers do capture these underlying values. And again, that comes back to how do you then translate it? It's not the surface translation, mm-hmm. but it's much more the deeper understanding of what it makes good um, design studio education. You know, what are the underlying values? For example, um, the relationships between peers and and mm-hmm. education you know uh, and as Derek said you know the example of who you haven't heard before it's really important you know so I think I think that was um, one of the big themes for me that came out 
Mm-hmm. Yep. I suppose when you put that together, though, as well, it, there's a couple of our tiny ones. One is round about the language. Um, it's the words that we use. Um, so we had these clunky words right at the start, like we're asynchronous, we're synchronous, we're proximate, we're physically proximate, we're online, we're distance. Face, mm. Even face-to-face was challenged. I remember that very early on by students saying, yeah, but we still are face-to-face. You know, So it's it's the meanings that we hold in our heads of these terms, these heuristics, that actually is really quite important. It's almost as if mm. we didn't have rich enough language to describe the experiences we were having, or we weren't knowledgeable enough to talk about these things. Uh, and again, that goes back to what I was saying earlier about the difficulty we had in translating our distance practice. Um, nobody's done this at this sort of scale before, so we, we didn't have the shared languages, the shared, shared knowledges. I think that's been the other cool thing for me is that bringing the community together, even just a little bit more, mm. taking a bit more confidence in our own ability as as people who know stuff about studio, not just talking about studio, but taking ourselves seriously as academics, researchers, and scholars in this area. Um, so even, like, for example, your paper, Mika, just mixing different methods, bringing it into the domain and saying, can we apply these sort of theoretical ideas to studio? Um, mm. And I've seen a few other scholars do very similar things um, to your approach, but using different theories. And yeah. they are useful things to do because we do know what we're talking about and we are uh, you know, competent researchers. So I think contributing to this knowledge, this body of knowledge is quite a cool thing as well. So thank you, by the way. That was sneaky. <laughs> thank you, thank you. But actually, I, I really like this uh, this idea, or like this, um, like what you mentioned about kind of new words. Um, it almost sounds like we need like a new, I don't know, like what's the word for that? It's like a lexicon. Yep. Like what do we mean? Or like yes. yep. kind of really being more nuanced. Yep. Yeah. yeah. No, I completely agree. I've, um, well, we'll see whether or not it gets accepted. I've been working on a, a wee paper on the back of this to talk about proximities, um, like spatial, temporal, and social proximities. Um, again, there's no good words in there, unfortunately, but it does actually, it calls for exactly mm. that, Mika. It calls for us almost to like create our own language. And if our language is, if it does use heuristics, if it uses, like um, Susan Orr and uh, Alison Shreve's their phrase, the sticky curriculum. Um, mm. You know, there's an importance mm. to that word, sticky, um, because it means something heuristically. It means something in a human term, but it also means something in a scholarly term, that there are certain things that aggregate as practice, as culture in a studio. So it's a kind of ha- having those kind of meanings, maybe not, um, yeah. not quite as diverse as that, but yeah, having those kind of heuristic meanings, I think is actually quite important. But again, that's just a, that's, that's a personal thing again. Yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. And actually, like, I, I, I don't know, <clears throat> just came to my mind as well that, you know, when there was like, I, I don't know, in quite many institutions, there were discussions on this uh, camera on or off mm-hmm. policy, right? <laughs> and and I, I don't know, like, and I don't have really any answer on this or like, and let me know if I'm taking this on a wrong tangent or like too far, but... Um, I just remembered that with uh, some of uh, some of our some of our students, right? So when they would join from from their home, they would um, the the female students would some of them would wear like the the headscarf, right? So then like that brings like the whole notion of kind of politics into the uh, so it kind of blends 
the mm -hmm. public space and the private space. Yep. And I found that a bit kind of problematic that, you know, can we really impose that? Mm -hmm. But then it's not really kind of black and white, but I don't know if you have any yeah. any thoughts mm -hmm. on, on this. Yep. Mm -hmm. It's interesting. Yep. Yeah, I, 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 for me, it, it is exactly what you say. It's not black and white. So mm -hmm. on the one hand, um, you know, proximity is not just, as, as we said before, not just seeing someone, right? Um, mm. Sometimes it is valuable to allow um, allow your students to to build on different proximities, you know, not just the face. On the mm. other hand, sometimes I do think it's also um, if you manage to create a safe space to allow your students to show themselves in their own environment, because again, this might give you might give you some hints about how you can um, incorporate their lived experience that's not in the studio, but that's in their own space. How do you usefully incorporate that in your teaching? Because I know lots mm. of troubles, um, I think VC is that you try to differentiate between, so that's in teaching space, this mm -hmm. is your yep. learning, this is this mm -hmm. world, and this is very different and separated from your home world. Yeah. And I think there are benefits for, for crossing those, mm -hmm. but you do need to make sure that students feel comfortable in doing so and if they do not it is better to turn camera off i think <laughs> yep yeah, yeah i completely concur with what nicole said i would also put my foot down on the old black and white on this as well that uh, on and off are just they are really boring binaries they really are you don't go yeah. into studio or out of studio there's a whole bunch of thresholds that you cross there's a whole bunch of spaces that you exist inside studio whole bunch of private spaces, semi-private spaces, semi-public spaces. We should think mm. about this architecturally. Go back mm. to those heuristics. So that private, semi-private, yeah. semi-public, public, why don't we have those spaces in that online, offline spectrum or in that distance, proximate spectrum? Um, again, we at the Open University, we do spend quite a bit of time allowing for all those types of spaces so that students can find the types of interaction that they are most comfortable with um, we don't require that students are there all the time so we almost if you think of it we design for the worst possible case if you want to think of it in deficit mm -hmm. thinking deficit language so we design for the case where you can't be sort of proximate and synchronous ever um, and then everything else can sort of contribute to the the total of the experience after that um, so I think that the black and white thing really isn't helpful and I think again mm -hmm. it goes back to the words we need better words for this on versus yeah, offline yeah. we need different degrees of it and again even just tools like this the the business tools that we have handed down to us and this is after left terrace thank you very much left terrace if you're listening um <laughs> the business tools that we are handed down to don't support us in terms of designerly activity so mm. communication like this it's great and we'll bound it we'll bound it in a particular way but it doesn't necessarily suit all of the types of communication and connection that we perhaps need in a studio space um, so again, we could do with better tools as well. Yeah, yeah. Actually, like I, Nicole and Derek, I don't know if you have if you've ever heard of this. Um, it's kind of virtual space, kind of like Second Life, but it's called Hubba Hotel. Oh yeah, I think so. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's like this kind of pixelated mm -hmm. yep. virtual world. Mm -hmm. I think that okay. would be such a wonderful idea, you know, to have. So like everyone has like an avatar. Yep. Right. Mm -hmm. So like that would be such a nice way to engage with the students or engage in the in the studio because then you know you could like some of the characters could lie on the on the bed someone could be lying on a sofa mm -hmm. someone could be like yeah. doing exercise or kind of granulating a bit 
Well, yeah. actually, I think I don't know if there's an example in the special. I think John Spruce's article maybe touches on this a bit, but some of the kind of the more blended spaces that happen between Miro and online synchronous communication. So actually, you use multiple tools to create those mm-hmm. kind of spaces. They 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 didn't quite go as far as having a, a sort of a workbench or a bed in that space, but they had these kind of Miro spaces that were used not in a didactic way, but in a more studio-like way. So you would break out to yeah. spaces or you would take tours of the, the, the Miro board. It was basically an added function. It wasn't the only thing that you were in. Mm. You weren't only doing one particular activity, but you were using those kind of spaces in between. I think those kind of hybrid type of activities, I think we're almost particularly suited to apply design processes, design methods to. I think that could be a really strong contender for different forms of hybrid um, education and also for mainstream Ooh. education in the future that mm-hmm. take a more design mm-hmm. studio type approach or designerly approach um, it might open up some avenues for other educators so yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean I do remember we've been um, you know toying around the second life as <laughs> yes. a long long time ago I remember that <laughs> and just seeing my children you know being totally into Roblox and, Mo- and Minecraft you know Minecraft. Um, yeah. and, and you, you do yeah you do see that you do see the love of it you know you are entirely in there that. that's their life you know and 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 why not you know you can things do it in a very different way than you would and, and you, you're much more free you know that that can be a safe space I mean absolutely you can be someone else not exactly how you look because you don't like yourself today or whatever it's, it's <laughs> yeah. great you know it gives you performative and you know mm-hmm. to, to be true we talked about the performative nature yep. of studio you know and it, it's a great kind of empowerment to be able to perform yourself in different ways you know not the one that are physically there right I mean there's, mm-hmm. there's lots of power and agency in that mm-hmm. however also need to mention a little bit on on kind of the digital poverty that we often don't think about and just you know um loads of design students at the OU but also in other areas they just do not have the the bandwidth the connection Mm -hmm. to fully engage in very kind of wide you know um kind of um media that are very intensive in, in bandwidth and um and which is really a shame so i do think we always have to think about you know uh, in which mm. context for whom who do we include what are their kind of boundaries as well and see you know what are in that situation the best ways to engage um with, with you know our students and learners and, and even communities we have papers also you know who do think about so it's not just a studio as in the student and the teacher but there's a broad a studio out there you know if you work with mm. communities mm. you do mm-hmm. need to consider kind of different stakeholders and that and their kind of needs and, and challenges mm-hmm. mm. no, that yeah that's really like I, I, that's a really beautiful thought right that like it brings in like these notions of care and respect mm-hmm. yes you know yep. like you know like how do you you can't just like invite it's not really about just like sending a zoom link or yep. teams link or i don't know if i'm supposed to be like i'm not endorsing this <clears throat> tools by no means but... <laughs> other synchronous communication tools are available yep. <laughs> yeah yeah no you're absolutely See, right and i think that that to me mm. mika has been for some of the um colleagues that i have spoken to later on and well even just recently uh, in, in this last year thinking i think and this kind of leads into i suppose what we're maybe going to be talking about next but where people have gotten to now is that we've moved past the, well, what tool are we going to use? And they're actually asking, right, so if we're using that tool, what are the consequences of it? And it's almost exactly mm. as you say, how do we take care of our studio, uh, students in, in, in that environment? How do we do 
more than just use it as a tool for a functional interaction um, and actually turn it into something that has a, a much deeper value. And that's where we can start to talk about things. Well, if students mm. are going to perform in these spaces, and by the way, they've been performing in traditional studio forever as well. Yeah. We, we mm. are oral, oral performers. But then how might we then address that in our pedagogies? How might we then address that in our curriculum? Is it something we should confront and say uh, that, this is okay to do that that you know can we expose our own personalities as teachers in those spaces um mm. what are the ethics of that what's the, the you know and it is a thing in design as well that design person or design personality thing i won't even attempt that phrase nicole um yeah. so <laughs> it is no i i i do think you know it's this how much of your own personality do you bring into you know mm-hmm. and i do think the boundaries are shifting quite drastically when the studio comes into your home in a sense mm-hmm. so you know you you are just uh, I think the boundaries is not just a space blowing, but also how much of you, you yourself, your own personality and background do you bring into into that space? And that could be, you know, quite a positive thing. But I think we always have to yep. think about how much everyone would like to do it or not. So that's really quite mm, important to mm. be aware of that and um, to allow a degree of how much you want to bring in or not. Yeah. And that that's actually like, like that's a really good point, right? That, um, in a way, like it kind of resonates with me in a sense that, like educators have more agency now to decide, like you know how much they want to open up, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, um, I remember like with the students, some of the first recollections they had during this um, distance period was that when they saw, for example, like our home, they saw like a glimpse. I mean, then they realized like you know, oh, these are actually yeah. people as these well, are humans. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. But I mean, but then like that started, that made me also think about this. What is the website? Is it like ratemyprofessor.com? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, yes, yes. So I mean, I mean, that, that, I mean, that has also made education personal, but maybe like not for the right reasons in a way. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I suppose in some sense, as educators, we've always had that option to open ourselves up uh, in traditional mm. studio as well. Um, and I, from my personal experience, some tutors did that wholesale and absolutely and completely, perhaps a little bit too much, uh, and others were quite closed and their mm. persona was very strictly controlled by what the studio was. I think there's a thing I'm gonna I'm gonna do the old Freire thing, the pedagogy of the <laughs> oppressed thing. He talks about um, is it genuine, um, authentic experiences in education, mm. and I think for me, mm. authentic to me by my reading of fear, and I'm not an expert, by the way, in any sense of, of, of fear, um, would be that authentic is kind of a balance between those two things, that full exposure of everybody, or everything, but also that kind of trust intersection of exposure of enough such that you can have a really genuine interaction with a student that's going to stay with them and, and maybe offer a learning opportunity for both parties, by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, because that's the thing about cool. exposing yourself as a teacher in the studio yeah. is that you might hope yourself to be transformed. And you know, when that happens, that is really cool as a teacher. I'm, I'm yeah. sure you know what I mean by that. It's, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So actually, like, kind of to, like, to, um, to continue a bit along those lines, like how do you see actually in the future, like when we talk about this, possibilities for for agency to emerge even more um how do you see that like to kind of pan out like you know are we moving away even more from this um 
kind of transmission knowledge transmission towards like kind of learning communities right where like we all are being transformed or how do you see like you know yeah what's your take on that tough topic so. of rock <laughs> <laughs> I, i mean that, that's always i mean but, but we always see um I, i think it's already already happening to some degree isn't it i mean we, we always i mean as scholars i do think you always build on other people but however i, I do think applying this this Um, way of thinking, you know, of being very open to new knowledge and building on, on other people's thought, I think probably needs to be much more underlying into education that you have, as, as you know, Derek um, called on Frere, this di true dialogic approach that you allow um, even, you know, your students to question you, to to not mm. take as, you know, knowledge as is, as a, as a static, as a... So I do think... We are doing okay in scholarly terms. I mean, there are certain ways that maybe you know a little bit fake. <laughs> However, on, um, I still I do truly believe that if you if you allow to be criticised and hence you know grow together with your with your students and the community you engage with, I do think that's the the foundation of trust you need in order to have this experience of lifelong learning of of you know of um, progressing together. So. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm quite hopeful for that. <laughs> Maybe I'm an optimist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I think I'll probably second that. Um, e even in those, I mean, there is a bit of a balance to be had there in some senses because, you know, if you are needing to learn how to, um, you know, do glass blowing, there are certain didactic activities that are still quite useful, you know, health and safety, knowing not to touch the red thing because it will burn the skin off your hand. Um, you know, these kind of like really basic things. I think it's still okay to have this blend of, sort of very strongly didactic but when it comes to praxis or practice when it comes to anything that and this is what's lovely about studio and and, and, and where almost craft-based learning it, it becomes really quite important it's that notion that it's you can demonstrate as much as you want but you cannot teach someone else to do the physical thing that you are doing to replicate mm. it entirely they have to find their own way to do that and in doing so they will create a new way of doing that yes it might just be a tiny tiny little difference but it might also be a tiny enough difference that it might make a big difference or it could be a useful way of doing it so that mm. way of learning that that little bit of like emergent or constructivist learning i still i'm passionately i passionately believe that, that that's one of the key core things that will drag us into some kind of hopefully or potentially sustainable future Because this transmission of, as you know, James Webb Young would call it, rapidly aging facts, um, it's, it is a redundant model. It really genuinely is. Um, or it's a redundant model if that's your only model. Sorry, I need to mm. phrase that very carefully. Because it can be useful, but it's useful in its own context, and it's certainly never useful on its own. It just leads to people able to repeat things, not to create new things. And what we're in the business of is hoping that people will do something different with the future than we have done with the past. It's really interesting. I do think it's so important to take the whole person approach to this, mm -hmm. to really, mm -hmm. and I think that's the core, again, on connecting to the, the person's background, their individual needs mm -hmm. and, and boundaries, what they frame for themselves. And if mm -hmm. you... Um, If you manage to bring that into education, I strongly believe that you will have a much more transformative and sustainable future mm -hmm. because the whole yeah. person 
has their whole world around them as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you connect mm-hmm. much better into the lived realities of not mm-hmm. just that one person, but, you know, everything that's around them. Um, yes, yeah, so I, I really think that, you know, going away from a much more process-oriented nature that might have been, in, you know, in uh, 10, 20 years ago, where we fought a lot about methods and processes and things that, you know, kind of um, standardized <laughs> to a certain degree. Yeah. But I think we are very moving away, going much more to looking at identities how do you bring you know how do you how do you develop a person the, the you know the 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 human in that or not mm-hmm. just the human going beyond even the you know the world in that sense mm-hmm. the, the world in that person i think that's much more important you know how do you work with the individual uh, yeah so I think yeah no um, well, actually <laughs> like like one thing that has been always like it's been bothering me a lot that you know I mean, I still remember my student times, like I was assigned like a student number and everyone gets assigned a student number. But why don't we give the option for people to choose their own ID? I mean, I mean it, it's not about the studio as such, but like, you know, like the whole like the whole experience, as you said, like, you know, mm-hmm. people are much more than just like a student number or name on a paper. So like, well, that's the yeah. institution, isn't it? You're you're subsumed into an existing institution, and the institution assumes it's not changing, right? So you have yeah. this university, you will be part of that, but whatever you are, it's it's left outside, right? So yeah. it's I think that really needs to change, doesn't it? That the institution needs to learn that they grow and change with their learners with everyone else you know they invite they invite to participate with them so it's much more Mm -hmm. less of a subsuming rather than a as you say growing together participating and building together yeah sounds quite abstract doesn't it but anyway (laughs) (laughs) but i mean isn't that like 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 thinking about thinking about the special issue for instance like that could be like one way to engage with that that you know you it's kind of source of inspiration for rethinking the institutional practices yeah but but i mean that i mean that's just like something that came to my mind but like do you do you have any thoughts like or like do you have any wishes or thoughts how you would like people to engage with that um nothing as, as you say i mean it is it, it's a useful way of of reflecting on institutional practices or not even institutional but or cultural practices or habitual mm. practices or practices that are based on belief um, so, I mean, a, a good starting point is, I think, is one of the things I'm, I'm quite pleased about with the special issue. It, it, these reflect, you know, just design educators doing design education uh, in the real world. Um, so I think any reader is going to immediately recognise some of the situations, contexts or lessons <clears throat> that are uh, sort of spelled out in the special issue. So that's always a good starting point if you can relate it to your own experience, first of all, and then if there's something else that's really interesting to reflect on that might make you think, I hadn't thought of it that way, or maybe I could mm. do this, dot, dot, dot. As Nicole said earlier, it's that second stage of reflection that marks proper design thinking. It's not sticking the post-it notes on the wall. It's actually what you do after it and what you do with those that matters far, far, far more. And that's where genuine design cognition comes in. And I think as design educators, we need to take a couple of big gulps of our own medicine on that one and really reflect quite strongly on what it is that we do think we value um i mean personally speaking i think we could possibly do with an even more radical shift um i think the move from design education into the academy that hasn't been a perfect marriage and i think it's time to maybe sit down Mm. with a relationship guidance counselor and 
ask some very serious questions of whether or not we should be in the academy um, in the way that we are just now, in the relationship that we are just now. We have a fundamentally mm. different type of knowledge. I think I'm coming to to believe that more and more strongly. Um, I won't develop that any further. I'll maybe let Nicole suggest. <laughs> no, 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 no. no. It's, it's, it's so interesting hearing you talk. And I, 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 mean, it, I was really thinking of our identity crisis. You know, I do yes. remember yep. coming into yep. design research and, and saying there isn't, you know, we have to borrow from other disciplines because mm-hmm. there isn't really anything mm-hmm. that we've ever really yep. produced. That's where I thought, no, you know. Um, but of course, you know, <laughs> we know that's not true. But it's just finding our, the you know, design finding its feeds in the academy, you know, and yeah. what growing in confidence and knowing what we can contribute. And I think that's exactly, you know, reading the papers and understanding what all these little things, the invisible things that the papers made visible actually contribute mm. to not just a design discipline, mm-hmm. but I do think other disciplines can learn, maybe even uh, to look at their own, you know, hidden hidden curriculum and mm-hmm. their little values mm-hmm. and little things that they do well. Um, so that might be, as um, Mika said, an inspiration, you know, for others to also look at these things. Um, Definitely. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, I, one of the mm-hmm. responses I played with them um, before I sent, over to Unico was the, is the idea that design education is the oldest form of education. You know, some of the oldest studios mm. go back to Mesopotamia, to Egypt, mm. to China. These are where studio arose. So these forms of education have existed for tens of thousands of years. This is where social learning, if you like, realizes itself. So we're actually an older pedagogy, if you like, than some of the more recent ones. The thing is, we've never had to say that we've never had to describe yes. it because we just do it we just get on with it um yes. you know, as I say, <laughs> if designers come out of the design studio then you don't need to you know kick it so we've never had to talk about it in this other language yeah. this uh, so i think there's an i agree though nicole i think you're right it, it it's not that we should divorce because i think there is actually a massive value in that partnership in that taking seriously the research or the knowledge construction of what it is we do as designers. And I think part of it, mm. Mika, is, as you said, having our own language or having our own ideas and you know, defending them, setting them up with the, the rigour and the knowledge that goes behind that, that is quite important. But, um, yeah. yeah, sorry, this is diverging yeah. slightly. My apologies. Yeah. No, no, I mean, but I mean, that's exactly like, you know, because like, I remember, so my, uh, when I was still working in, in Finland in a, in a business school, I was reading like the, the history book and I was really, really fascinating because they had these pictures from 1960s and this is a business school, right? So what I saw in the picture was like a bunch of people in white lab coats. They actually had like a food laboratory in the business school where they tried out different foods. They were experimenting. They were, that was like a really kind of rudimentary or basic level, like design studio in a way. You engage with your whole body and your senses and they, I think they were like, there was in the picture, they had like, they were trying out sausages. I don't know which meat that's not necessary. Uh, that's not relevant. Um, but I mean, there's so much to be like mm-hmm. in other disciplines, like there's so much that you can, you can actually take back or learn. Absolutely. And that's a fantastic example. You know, the Latour's work on studying laboratory, you know, studying the culture of yeah. laboratory. There's yeah. a there's another collection by Farias and Wilkie, which is well worth picking up uh, if anybody's interested in studio cultures. And they also sort of take that sort of approach. But there are differences between what happens in a laboratory and what happens in a studio. Um, so, for example, mm. one of the differences that James Carrazzo would identify would be that 
we hide our work in the studio. We don't show our client the piles of sketches. We don't show them all the tired designers trying to catch 10 yeah. minutes nap on the desk. We show them the final drawings. Whereas in a science lab, what you should do is actually show all of your working. You're supposed to make the whole thing transparent so that you've got a very rigorous and clear process all the way through. We would never mm. explain the process to the client. So there are differences. And I think knowing that, first of all, is good. Second of all, then being able to talk about it and to compare and contrast. Because when you compare and mm. contrast, that's where you find interesting things to talk about with colleagues. Um, but I say we need that language in the first instance um, to, to start to be confident about saying, no, there is a difference here. Um, or there's mm. a relevant difference, or there's a pragmatic difference, or there's a difference for whatever reason, um, not just a difference for the sake of it, for, for the sake of arguing. True, true. So, and apologies, like there's no segue here, but it's just like, you know, the question we usually <laughs> ask at the end of uh, each episode. So thinking about um, cloud reaches in your field, so who or what would you identify as a cloud reacher? Well, for me, I, yeah, this is a tricky one for me. Um, but I, I struggle with the, the cult of personality and like individuals. Um, well, particularly given this special issue in particular, um, and I've just finished um, my thesis as well, and you realise just how many people have helped you to get to that stage. I think it's really hard to... And even ourselves, it feels uncomfortable um, sort of saying this as an individual. But I mean, there's so many individuals that have contributed lots of bits, if you like, to the community. Um, so yeah, I would I would celebrate the collective rather than the individual on this one. I'm sorry, um, and I think that's cool. I think that's okay um, because I'm. I mean, I've been involved in, as I say, the education special interest group. So I've been to the design education, the LearnX conferences. I've been to them every year since Oslo. And it just is it's a really cool community. We, It's just this group of really passionate designers and design educators who really care about design education. It's not about you know academic careers. It's just about the stuff mm. that's in front of us. Um, and that kind of strong identity, that, that's something I think is quite powerful. And it'd be, yeah, that's the thing that I would celebrate would be the collection of authors that are in this special issue. Sorry. <laughs> not sorry at all. I think I'll, 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 I could frame that even broader so as, as we've mentioned before so there are those who thought about it before and we build on their thoughts like Frere or you know mm -hmm. bell hooks or dewey you mm -hmm. know um they're, they're all the underlying things we've mentioned about you know dialogic learning even liberation you know from oppression mm -hmm. and and also social mm -hmm. construction but i want to also take it in the extreme opposite direction and i think for me the cloud reaches are those that asterics struggle every day and mm -hmm. you know we had we had to for example um, take papers out where they could not, yeah. you know, work on it so we could bring it to a stage. And I think mm. these are actually the cloud reachers, those, you know, practitioners who work tirelessly, who have done amazing work, but there's just no time to 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 bring it to a stage to communicate yeah. it to the rest of the world. And oftentimes these educators are, you know, in the global south who do not have the resources we might have, you know, from our universities, mm. given time to engage in scholarly activities, editing, you know, a special issue and putting our names against it. It's it's unfortunately those I think that are not mentioned are actually the cloud reaches, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Um so yeah, I think I think that's important to say. Wow. Thank you, Nicole and Derek. Really, really beautiful and powerful words. And just to remind, so your special issue 
design education teaching in crisis is out now and we'll be sharing the link in the description but yeah once again like nicole and derek thank you so much for taking the time to uh for this chat i really enjoyed it no, thanks for you. having us yeah, it's pleasurable indeed. Thank you. Yeah, cool. Thanks Thank for you. having us.